Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Viva la France and God bless America. Wow, that champagne looks good. Get a little mimosa right now to start the weekend off. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. That was President Biden hosting French President Macron at the White House, using the first state dinner of his presidency to honor America's oldest ally. And look who showed up. Wow. A whole bevy of people. It's John Legend, his wife. Colbert. Uh, Colbert. Colbert. Anna Wintour. Did you guys notice anyone else? Jennifer Garner. Yeah. There we go. Oh, there's, there's Anna Wintour with her legendary. The sunglasses, sunglasses never come off, even at the White House. No. Oh, oh that's was that Tim Cook. Kevin that's McCarthy Cook. was there. He was asked actually about yeah. those GOP investigations. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, many, many others. We're going to tell you all about that straight ahead. So we have a lot to get to, but this is just in. We have new CNN polls out of Georgia. Who has the narrow lead this morning ahead of a high-stakes race? Everyone is watching. We'll tell you. Also this morning, gas prices are down, actually lower today than they were the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. We'll tell you what's behind the dip with our Pete Muntean standing by. Also, Elon Musk, who you've called a few years ago, you called him, quote, a national treasure. And and he's saying there is not enough free speech on Twitter and I'm changing it. Um, Are you worried at all about how he's running Twitter? Um... That answer ahead. One of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman joins us on Elon Musk and the state of tech. Well, talk about a tease, Poppy. I can't wait for that one. But first, brand new CNN polling on next week's critical Senate runoff election in Georgia. Take a look at this. Incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock clinging to a four-point lead over his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. The polling also reveals that voters and many supporters have serious questions about Walker's honesty, integrity, and his qualifications for the job. Among the doubters, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, he campaigned for Warnock in Atlanta yesterday, and he used a rambling speech by Walker to hammer the point home. Here it is. You ever watch a stupid movie late at night, hoping you're going to get better, don't get better, but you keep watching it anyway? So the other night, the other night I was watching this movie, I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Sweet Night, or some type of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if you know vampires are cool people, are they not? But I'm tell you something that I found out. A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I didn't want to be a vampire anymore. I want to be a werewolf. Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. When I was seven. Then I grew up. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. 
except for a United States Senator. When you spend more time thinking about horror movie fantasies than you do thinking about the people you want to represent, that says something about your priorities. <laughs> uh, that's a lot there. So let's bring in now our senior data reporter, Harry Inton. Good morning to Good morning, you. Tom. So we have this new polling out of Georgia, the Senate runoff there. Just four days out. What do you have? Yeah. All right. So, you know, let's just start with that top line that you mentioned. And we've got Raphael Warnock with a 52 to 48 percent lead. I'll, I'll tell you this much. This race is still within the margin of error, right? That applies to the margin. The margin of error is a little less than four points. The margin here is four points, but you've got to essentially double that margin of error to understand the margin of error between the candidates. So this is still a very narrow advantage, but it is a larger lead than Warnock had, of course, in the general election where he got more votes than, Raphael, than Herschel Walker did, but only by about a point. This is a four-point margin. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper, right, to understand sort of why it is that Raphael Warnock has the lead. So which candidate is well-qualified? Raphael Warnock, 52%. Herschel Walker, 27%. Has good judgment. Raphael Warnock, 50%. Herschel Walker, 33%. Would effectively represent, represent the state of Georgia? Raphael Warnock, 50%. Herschel Walker, 41%. So when you look at sort of those candidate quality issues, Raphael Warnock comes out ahead on all of them and by pretty clear margin. So is it, this is why Walker is staying. So why is, why is Walker yeah. staying so close? Then? So, you know, you look at this, and you say Raphael Warnock should be running away with this. Right. Race, right, right. right? It, it, look at these candidate qualities. But let's take a look at what the biggest factor in your vote is. Right. So candidate issue positions, 57 percent. Candidate character, 42 percent. Raphael Warnock is winning the vast majority of these voters who say candidate character. But take a look at this 57 percent who say candidate issue positions are, in fact, the biggest factor in your vote. And take a look at these voters. These voters favor Herschel Walker by a 64 percent to 35 percent margin. So basically the fundamentals, you know, the high inflation, Joe Biden's unpopularity are keeping this race close because those voters, they may not love Herschel Walker, but they prefer him to Raphael Warnock because they just don't like Raphael Warnock. It's not necessarily about loving Herschel Walker. Uh, all right, Harry, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Harry, stick around a little bit later on the show because I want you to pay attention to this. Ahead, I spoke with Georgia voters who were, they were Team Walker, right? I'm sorry, they were Team Walker and Team Warnock and one who was still undecided at this stage. We're going to tell you what they say about the state of the race right now. Yeah, look forward to hearing from them. All right, there's a lot going on this morning in Washington. We're waiting for the release of the November jobs report. Most economists expect a little slowdown in hiring, which, by the way, the Fed wants to tame inflation. Also, big news overnight, a freight rail strike has been averted. The Senate passed legislation to keep rail workers on their job and basically block their ability to strike. A walkout would have crippled the U.S. economy. That bill now goes to the president's desk for his signature. In a separate proposal, the Senate rejected, though, to provide rail workers with seven additional days of paid sick leave. Remember, that had been a big sticking point. Senator Bernie Sanders and others had pushed for that. Well, that vote against it was 52 to 43. Six Republicans voted for the sick leave measure. You see them on the left of your screen. Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia was the only one in his party to vote against it. Ahead, we will be joined by a rail worker who says President Biden turned his back on his main union workforce and let them down. This morning, gas prices are down. They're way down. They're lower, actually, than where they were before Russia invaded Ukraine about 10 months ago. Pete Montine is live at a gas station in Alexandria, Virginia. I was surprised with this headline. What do you know? <laughs> yeah, me too a bit. You know, we've done live shot after live shot 
about gas prices going up and up. The national average of a gallon of regular now $3.45, according to AAA. Think about where we were back on February 24th, Poppy, when we saw Russia invade Ukraine. The national average of a gallon of regular then, $3.54. So we are now below that milestone which created so much uncertainty in the global oil market. We were worried about supplies of oil coming from Russia and uh, from Europe. Those uh, fears were relatively unfounded, according to industry analysts. And they're saying that now things are really starting to stabilize. We've seen the price of gasoline go down about 13 cents in the last week. Not all good news, though. There's still concern about China's COVID policies. There's concern about what OPEC could do in its policies, causing oil to go up and then gas prices to go up. So we will have to wait and see. But just think about where we were, Poppy, back on June 14th when we saw the all-time high for a gallon of regular gas. The national average was $5.01. We've seen it go down $1.50 since, 30%. It's almost hard to believe. There's reason to think because those OPEC cuts haven't been fully you know, ingested into the market yet, and they're big cuts. Is there a reason to believe prices are going to continue to go down, or is this temporary? It seems like all of the analysts now are saying they will think prices will go down at least in the short term. Patrick DeHaan of Gas Buddy says we could see 328, maybe 320 by the end of this year, which would be a nice Christmas present for folks. Remember, you know, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that record release, really helped this in a big way Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Although analysts say this is bigger than any one president, this is still a global market. There's a lot of uncertainty still, so we'll have to wait and see. Pete Montine, thank you. Also this morning, if you're counting on relief from your student loans, as you heard from President Biden earlier this year, you might have to wait a little longer to see if it's actually going to happen. The Supreme Court has now decided that President Biden's debt forgiveness program is going to stay blocked for now, but the oral arguments are on the case are set for February. That is actually a very unusually fast case or a fast track coming from the Supreme Court, but it does mean that a decision likely won't come down until June. That leaves millions in limbo, waiting to see if their student loans are actually going to be forgiven. As a reminder, President Biden's program would offer up to $20,000 of debt relief to the millions of those who qualified, but the plan has been plagued by lawsuits ever since it was announced from the White House. About 26 million people had already applied for the program by the time it was frozen. That prompted the White House to stop taking applications. So far, obviously, no debt has been canceled. Well, overnight, President Biden rolled out the red carpet for his first state dinner, hosting French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Bridget. Today, we're still united by the greatest of causes, democracy, liberty, equality, opportunity, and freedom. We stand together against oppression and injustice. We stick up for one another and our, de- our democratic values to which Washington and Lafayette dedicated their lives. Brigitte, Brigitte. There's, oh, wow, look at all the fancy folks there. The event drawing big names from the inter- entertainment industry, fashion, politics, business. Here with all the details, CNN White House correspondent Kate Bennett, who was at last night's big event. She previewed the menu yesterday, and now she's going to tell us what it was all like. Good morning to you. What did you see? What stars? What stood out to you? 
Well, there a lot of stars were back. I will say this, though. When that toast was happening that the president just did there, it was almost 10 o'clock p.m. So, and Caitlin can relate to this, but President Joe Biden tends to not run on time. So it was a very late evening. In fact, President Macron made a joke when he came in saying, I hope everyone enjoyed their dinner. Uh, and no one had been served a first course yet. So anyway, but earlier in the evening, uh, of course, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus brought her son as her date. Uh, it was nice to see Veep. And then Chrissy Teigen was there. Off, of course, she is she is pregnant with John Legend's their what, third child. Uh, Stephen Colbert was there with his wife. And uh, also Jennifer Garner also brought her daughter, Violet Affleck, which was pretty adorable um, to the state dinner. And Anna Winter, of course, you have to have some fashion with Baz Luhrmann. Uh, uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook was there. Lots of business leaders were there last night for sure. Uh, but certainly it was more star-studded than we've seen in recent years. Uh, the previous administration was not exactly aligned with mainstream Hollywood. Uh, so it was it was definitely a change. Also, another change, more politicians. You know, we just uh, saw one there. There were Republicans at this Democratic state dinner. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, Susan Collins, uh, Steve Scalise, and of course, Nancy Pelosi was there. Uh, the outgoing speaker, she said that she was uh, happy to pass off the baton there to her predecessor, to her, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who was replacing her. Uh, but overall, the night was great. I mean, people enjoyed themselves. This was the first Biden state dinner. Uh, for the administration, about 400 guests were seated for dinner. Uh, John Baptiste played uh, on the piano. He did some songs there during dinner for entertainment. But it was certainly uh, a very festive evening. You know, guests were ferried from the White House down to the tent in heated trolleys. So it was really extravagant. It was quite a lovely evening. Yeah, it's rare for one to not happen for this long. I mean, obviously, COVID delayed it. That's why they hadn't had it. It is interesting, though, Kate, to see Kevin McCarthy there. And some people may be watching this and wondering why he was invited, not used to seeing, obviously, Kevin McCarthy at the White House that he's feuded with so much. He actually got asked, though, about the, the GOP majority coming in January and those investigations they plan to pursue, including into President Biden's family. Exactly. Um, he was asked about that. He's, he didn't respond. He said, I'm here with my mother. Um, he didn't uh, he didn't say anything about that. But I, I will say this, Caitlin, I was inside the tent during the toast. Uh, he and his mother were seated off to the far end of one table. Uh, he did not applaud. He did not clap during President Biden's toast. He wasn't <laughs> as effusive as the other guests. And, you know, it, it was probably a challenging room for him to sit in for all of uh, five hours and enjoy that dinner. Interesting dinner. Kate Bennett, thank you. Thank you. Okay, also new this morning, Kanye West has been suspended from Twitter again for incitement of violence. We'll tell you what is behind that. Also, I mean, it's a, a pelvic contusion. I think it like hit in the balls. Yep, Captain America just said that. U.S. World Cup star Christian Pulisic on the injury that could, but we hope not, keep him out of tomorrow's big game. All right, former President Trump suffered a major legal setback overnight after a federal appeals court stopped that special master's review of the documents that were taken to his Mar-a-Lago home and seized by the FBI. A few months ago, as you remember, a federal judge in Florida had appointed a special master to review these documents, rejecting the Justice Department's argument that former presidents can't claim executive privilege after they leave office. Joining us now to talk about what this means is CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, this is a huge blow for Trump and his attorneys and essentially what they had been pursuing here. 
Exactly, Caitlin. And it's a big win for the newly appointed special counsel, Jack Smith, because this removes an obstacle to his investigation into the mishandling of government records. The so-called special master was appointed by a lower court, and the job was to review these thousands of documents found at Trump's home and decide what was potentially privileged and should be kept from investigators. And that process slowed down the entire case. Now, this decision to get rid of the special master, it's interesting because it was made by a panel of three judges, all GOP appointees, two even appointed by Trump himself. And on the one hand, the court acknowledged that it is extraordinary for a warrant to be executed at the home of a former president, but they say that's not enough for a court to interfere with an ongoing investigation. It wrote, we cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Now, Trump's team is still weighing whether to appeal this ruling. And we're also learning that a judge has ordered two Trump two top Trump White House attorneys to go and testify before the grand jury. What can you tell us about this? Well, Caitlin, these lawyers are former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and his deputy, Patrick Philbin. They've both previously appeared before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But when they testified, they declined to answer some questions, citing Trump's claims of both executive and attorney-client privilege. But those privilege claims, they have been the subject of an ongoing legal fight, and the judge has now rejected them, as the judge has rejected similar claims by other witnesses, including top aides to the former vice president, Mike Pence. Now, Trump's legal team is expected to appeal that ruling. So I guess if you're, you're hearing this this morning about the special counsel, about these two former attorneys having to testify, what is the main takeaway for what it means for Trump overall? Look, this was another bad day in court for him. But, Caitlin, you and I have covered the former president for a long time. You know he may lose a lot of battles, but when it comes to these legal investigations, he tends to ultimately win the war. And one of his favorite tactics is to stonewall or delay these investigations. In both of these cases, judges have rejected those attempts. So if both of these decisions are ultimately upheld, it will help the special counsel move a lot faster. But, you know, it doesn't mean too much for the ultimate outcome for these investigations. Yeah. And I was talking to Trump people yesterday. We're waiting to see if they're going to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court when it comes to the special master. Not totally clear yet. Paula Reed, thank you for that update, though. An important story now, and I hope that you will just take a moment and pay some attention to this, because I'm going to give this news to you straight. Elon Musk suspending Kanye West from Twitter overnight. Why? The anti-Semitic rapper tweeted a swastika wrapped inside the Star of David. We are not going to show you the image because it is hateful, nor will we be showing you the deranged clip of West praising Hitler and saying that he loves Nazis on a show run by Alex Jones. Alex Jones is a conspiracist who is being ordered to pay millions for his lies about the Sandy Hook shooting. But there are two things that are noteworthy this morning. First, House Republicans finally removing a tweet from two months ago in which they praised West, they praised Musk and Donald Trump in the same tweet. Since then, West, of course, has spent weeks on a parade of racist and anti-Semitic rants and losing his billionaire status as a result. Musk spent $44 billion to take over a company, spending his time attacking and insulting people, tweeting out misinformation, and images used by racists. And the second noteworthy thing this morning is that all three of these men seen here engaged in this anti-Semitic conversation. They have connections to Donald Trump. 
In fact, two of them sitting right there, a Holocaust denier, white supremacist, and a Hitler-praising anti-Semite, had dinner with the current presidential candidate a week ago inside his home, a place that is currently under federal investigation. And as CNN reports, Trump at one point during the dinner said that he liked the white nationalists. A reminder for you, six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust by Hitler, by Nazis. And Kanye West has 19 million Instagram followers, 32 million Twitter followers, and more, that is more than there are Jews in the entire world, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Hardly a voice without a following across the country, on conservative media and on Capitol Hill, and previously inside the White House. It is hate in the mainstream. Don, thank you very much for that. Ahead, President Biden confirming he will sit down for talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin, but there's one major condition. Here it is, plus this. Well, that sent a jolt throughout the World Cup. Another perennial powerhouse is out as the U.S. is preparing for tomorrow's big match against the Netherlands. It's a knockout round. We have former Major League Soccer star Kaylin Carr joining us to talk about America's chances. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Here is what is coming up for us. We have an update. U.S. men's soccer player Christian Pulisic speaking out on his injury. Also, this chilling new body camera video shows tense moments during a mass shooting in October that left five people dead. We will take you this morning inside of that shootout. And there is a crisis in Silicon Valley with widespread layoffs in tech. I spoke with one of the best-known founders in Silicon Valley, Reed, ha- Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn. That interview is ahead. And also... Quote, no one sees what is happening behind closed doors. That from Harry and Meghan in a new docu-series, what the couple is revealing now. All right. This is the heart-stopping goal by Christian Pulisic. It gave the U.S. men's soccer team the win over Iran. He put his body on the line to score that goal. Since then, American soccer fans have been almost singularly focused on his health after he had a pelvic contusion. This is what he told reporters about how he's doing. I mean, it's a, a pelvic contusion, you know. Um, just, it's, it's not a euphemism, Henry. It's what it sounds like. No, but at the same time, it's not. Like, I didn't get, like, hit in the balls, but, like, it, it's not like, I'm all right. I'm all right. It was very painful, and it, it just, you know, that bone is there for a reason to protect you, I think, and I, I, I hit it well, and uh, it was sore, but uh, like I said, I'm getting better. Says he's getting better. Tomorrow, the United States is going to take on Netherlands in a winner-go-home match. And if America wins, they would play the winner of the Australia-Argentina match. Also, in an extraordinary finale, you have to see this. The underdogs, Japan, eliminating four-time World Cup champions Germany in a stunning 2-1 victory that knocked, they, they beat Spain and knocked Germany out. So we'll tell you what fans could expect heading into tomorrow's match. We'll bring in our analyst and host for Major League Soccer and former MLS player himself, Kellen Carr. Tell us what to watch. Yeah, I mean, anything can happen. And I think Japan proved that at this point. Um, for the U.S., we're going to have all eyes right now, rightly focused on Christian Pulisic and his health and availability. I'd expect to see him start. I can't imagine a scenario where he doesn't come on the pitch. Um, and in that same press conference, you know, they asked him, they said, 
hey, you finally had your moment because we missed the last World Cup and now he came back and had this crucial goal to send us through. But what I liked what he said is, He's like, I hope this wasn't my moment. I loved that. Yeah, he's we're like, gonna play that for people next hour. It's I, so I great. I hope that there's more ahead, and I think that's what I love about the personality of this team. But the, it's him and Josh Sargent are this. They're on day, they're day to day. Right. So what happens if they don't play? What do you think that means? It's a good question. Uh, there's a couple options here. I, I think um, you know, especially on the winger position, you could see Brendan Aronson coming in. He came in at halftime for Christian Pulisic. We do have some depth at that position. Timwea. Maybe you move him around. Gio Reyna is another guy we've looked at. So I think there's some options up front, but I would expect to see Christian in there from the start. So what happens? So the U.S. is going to win tomorrow. You know, just I like that. <laughs> fingers I like crossed. That. <laughs> and, then, and then what happens? Then how do they need... What do they need to do to win the whole shebang? Well, it is tough to get too far ahead of yourself here, but I do love that, that attitude. But, you know, the fact that this is the youngest team in the World Cup, uh, the starting lineup, is the youngest team. And we have, you know, even when you look at the captain, Tyler Adams, who um, I saw growing up here in Major League Soccer with the Red Bulls and then has now uh, become the star and captain of this team, really the heartbeat of the team. You know, now America is really getting a chance to learn about these guys and I think the personality of the group. So they'll embrace being underdogs against Netherlands, it is a big task. If you look at some of the players on that uh, on that side, you have Virgil van Dijk, who's one of the best defenders in the world, and Gakpo is you know on fire, scored in every game yeah. so far in the World Cup for Netherlands. So it's going to be a tough task. If you get past that, oh, no problem. Guess you have waiting for you. <laughs> Potentially, Lionel Messi in Argentina in his last World Cup. So, yeah. you know, yeah, this no, is... <laughs> no pressure. But can we, can we talk about what happened yesterday? Japan upsetting Spain, yes. knocking Germany out. I mean, this was this basically changed what everyone thought the end of this World Cup was where we get to the knockout stage was going to look like. Yeah, if you came into the tournament and you look at this group and you say, well, Spain and Germany, two powerhouses, they're going through. Nothing is going to stop them from getting through. But Japan had something else to say. Beat both of them. Uh, you know, did take a little bit of a controversial call whether that ball was fully over the line or not, was able to keep it in. But I think this tournament has had some big surprises. Um, the U.S. actually lost to Japan before the tournament, and everybody was like, oh, no, we're going to struggle. Well, it actually doesn't look so bad now looking yeah. back at it. This Japan team is quality. 90 to 1 that the U.S. takes it all. I mean, look. So you're why saying you there's be, a chance. Why are you got to be Donnie no, Downer there. I'm saying there's a chance. I'm not Donnie Downer. I'm just saying there is a chance. 90, you know, and it's good, as we were saying before in the break, it's good to have an underdog attitude. Yeah, I think we'll, that will suit this team in particular. And look, you know, the, the bigger mission, I think, is to grow the sport here. And the fact that this team is, is really sort of capturing the attention of, of the world in some ways and changing the, the perception of American soccer. We've seen the women's side in the past really capture the, the attention of the world and, and win the World Cup. Uh, yeah. The men still uh, have a ways to go. A few times the women yes, won the World exactly. Cup. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, just the idea that we can continue to grow the sport here, the next World Cup, by the way, is coming here. It's in 2026. It's going to be in the U.S., uh, Canada, and Mexico. So the idea that this young team will then be in their prime by then, that would be fantastic. But, hey, I love the optimism. Don, <laughs> we got to bring you to the team. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm there. He's coming. All right. Yeah. 10 a.m. tomorrow we'll be watching. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Thank you. A major defeat for former President Trump. Why an appeals court says a special master should never have been appointed to review the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago in the first place. Also, we have chilling new body camera video from a deadly shootout with a teenage killer in Raleigh. What it shows ahead.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. New this morning, police in Raleigh, North Carolina, are releasing chilling new body cam video from officers' three-hour shootout and standoff with a 15-year-old mass shooting suspect. The footage begins after the attack, which left five people dead. CNN's Ryan Young joins us now with the very latest. Good morning to you. Ryan, what do we see on this new body cam video? It's a very chilling. You got to think, though, this entire community is still asking a lot of questions. There's still been no motive provided. And when you think about the victims in this case, you had two women just in their neighborhood, someone else on a jogging trail and an officer going to work. So many questions left unanswered. And hopefully this video starts showing how dangerous this was for officers who were trying to bring the suspect into custody. Police releasing dramatic body cam footage from the October 13th mass shooting in Raleigh, North Carolina. A 15-year-old boy allegedly killed five people, including his older brother and an off-duty police officer. After an hours-long manhunt, K-9 officers tracked him down while he was barricaded inside of a barn-like building in the woods, according to the police body cam video. Right knee. All right, put his tourniquet on. Get a tourniquet on his right knee. At one point in the video, an officer is struck by gunfire while multiple officers continue to fire back. Other officers are applying a tourniquet to his leg. After firing 23 shots, Raleigh officers establish a perimeter around the building before going in and finding the suspect wounded, according to a preliminary police report released in October. Investigators say the suspect had a shotgun and shells nearby him. The suspect has not been charged. However, the Wake County District Attorney has said her office intends charging the 15-year-old as an adult. In a statement obtained by a CNN affiliate, WTVD, in October, the suspect's parents saying they don't understand why this happened, writing, quote, there were never any indications or warning signs that their son was capable of doing anything like this. Yeah, Don, me and my team, we walked the neighborhood after that shooting. We were talking to neighbors for at least two days afterwards. They all were still in shock because nothing like this, of course, had ever happened in their neighborhood. But still, they were just baffled about the lack of information they were getting. One of the questions right now is why hasn't that teen faced any charges since he survived the shooting? How it's been explained to me by investigators there is that he first has to get well enough to be able to stand in court so he can be charged then as an adult. But this happened back in October, so you can understand why some folks are still very frustrated about why this is taking so long. Ryan Young, thank you very much. So ahead, what is going on with all of these layoffs in Silicon Valley? The co-founder of LinkedIn, one of the best-known venture capitalists there, Reid Hoffman, joins us with his, his take next, plus this. No one sees what's happening behind closed doors. It's the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Like, you've never seen them before. A look at the trailer for their new tell-all Netflix docuseries. A wave of widespread layoffs in the tech industry. Big companies like Meta, formerly Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, all announcing really significant job cuts in just the past few weeks. So we wanted to know... What is happening in Silicon Valley? So I sat down with someone who knows Silicon Valley better than pretty much anyone, Reid Hoffman. He co-founded LinkedIn, was one of Facebook's first investors. He's a partner at venture capital firm Greylock and recently launched an artificial intelligence startup called Inflection. Here's that conversation. Reid, thanks for the time. Always great to be here with you, Poppy. So 
What is happening in Silicon Valley? It seems like this is quite a moment of crisis. Why? Well, um, you know, those of us who are a little older have lived through these kind of uh, uh, bear markets and, and retractions before. And there's still a lot of energy in technology. It's just that each entity and each company now goes, as opposed to trying to do everything, we have to do a few things really well. And ultimately, that's better for the industries. That's better for society. Obviously, there's a lot of pain in the dislocation. There's, you know, uh, layoffs are never a good thing. Uh, but uh, but I think that's what's going through. I don't think this is like a, you know, kind of like for whom the bell tolls moment. I think it's right. a it's a it's a refocusing moment. You were one of the first investors in Facebook. Do you think looking at it now, it is a net positive for the world and society and, and truth or not? Yeah, so I think. Um, well, truth is, I think, a little bit more complicated. I do think it's a net positive. Um, I know that's a little bit of a contrarian thing to say these days, but but part of the reason I think that is we we, we always kind of focus on well, there's these vaccine deniers and these people, you know, spouting crazy theories like PizzaGate, and look at that, and you go, okay, that's crazy, uh, QAnon, etc., crazy, but. But on the other hand, there's tons of people who are sharing like, you know, here's what my daily life experiences and here I'm staying connected with my family and my friends and all the rest. I mean, when, when, when you have you know, over a billion people using the share, that's all of this kind of good social fabric kind of goes unreported. And I do think that there's information flow there that flows in a good way, despite the fact that one can pull up examples, just like one can pull up examples out of the internet that are like, well, that's crazy or that's terrible. And so I think it is net positive. Now, on the truth People are dying point, from the crazy. Some people are dying yeah. from the crazy. Like, and I wonder, is, um, you know, and I'm, I mean, QAnon conspiracy theories have led to actual violence. Yeah, um, uh, 100% think that that's a problem and 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 it needs uh, work. But by the way, people are dying from driving on highways, too. And we don't say stop driving on highways. <laughs> right? except, I mean, it's, except companies like Facebook are making money off of this. Well, but then again, you say, well, people are selling cars. And so I mean, I think I think the I, look, I think I, I'm not trying to say there are no issues and it can't be yeah. improved. Yeah. Uh, what I am saying is the fact that it is generally thought of as kind of a, a kind of a den of of complete disaster, yeah. you know, is kind of like highlighting the fact that there was a drunk driver on the highway that caused yeah. a, an accident. Say there's there goes the whole highway system. <laughs> How do you make it yeah. better and safer for when my kids are old enough to get on the platforms? They're more protected. So I think there's two or three variables. So one variable is to say, I think one of the legitimate criticisms of social media is that because they're pursuing engagement and clicks and time, that um, it, it tends to, to orient towards agitation, mm -hmm. towards division, towards anger, towards fear, towards, you know, disregard. And um, and you say, well, OK, let's 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 try to create like kind of the tuning of the algorithms, the tuning of what's going on. To, 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 to contain that sum. Obviously, some anger or disregard is important. You say, you know, uh, uh, you know, a manufacturer is putting lead in children's toys. You say, I should be angry, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but, but, but like try to do that generally. I also think that freedom of, of reach and freedom of speech are not the same thing. So I should be able to say the moon is made out of blue cheese or the Holocaust never happened, you know, both of which are kind of crazy town statements. But um, but that doesn't mean that it should necessarily be spread. And when there is when there is kind of things that are going on that have 
you know, kind of damage, especially, for example, things that would lead to violence or lead to, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, anything that kind of that, that has like significant human suffering yeah. and has this kind of truth coefficient. Well, you can figure out, I mean, this is part of the genius of technology, how to tune that down some. It doesn't mean zero errors, just like right. no zero errors on the highway, but you can make it less. And that's what I think we should be focused on. So can we talk about that as related to Elon Musk, who you've called a few years ago, you called him, quote, a national treasure. And, and he's saying and the way, there is not enough free speech on Twitter, and I'm changing it. Um, are you worried at all about how he's running Twitter? Um, so uh, the short answer is, of course, yes. I mean, Elon, I do think, is a national treasure. Revolutionized, re-brought in, re reinvented the space industry. Uh, they, they, they brought in the new satellite industry, the satellite industry that helped Ukraine. Uh, revolutionized the auto industry for bringing back electric vehicles and, and, and making that kind of greening of the, of the world important, all of which is important treasures. Now, the, the, those are engineering problems. One of the things when you get to Twitter, that's a human problem. That's a, yeah. that's a problem of how do, how do people kind of work together? And people are messy. Uh, they're not, they don't fit in a simple engineering systems and a simple kind of like, hey, it's just a freedom of speech question is, 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 a too, is an overly simplistic thing. You've co-founded the first company since you sold LinkedIn to Microsoft, and it's all about artificial intelligence. It's called inflection. Is it going to make our lives better or is AI going to take away our jobs and replace <laughs> us? Uh, so inflection, we haven't we haven't revealed the product yet. You know, our hope is to make our lives a lot better. Actually, in fact, with AI, the, the very popular uh, discussion about AI is, you know, the robots, all a Terminator, are coming for your lives. Oh no, they're not coming for your lives. They're coming for your jobs. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just like it's it's like technology is always like an amplification. Actually, I think that's what we're going to see in AI. TikTok. Uh, this week, the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, uh, banned TikTok from all government devices because of security concerns. I just want to note for our viewer, your firm, uh, Greylock, is a shareholder in TikTok's owner, which is ByteDance, through your investment in Musical.ly. Um, and there are major concerns, not just from her, from uh, high-ranking members of both parties that, that don't think TikTok is safe to operate in the United States because of the data and the accessibility of the Chinese government. Do you believe TikTok operating in the U.S. is a national security concern? I don't think today it's a national security concern, but I don't discount the issue that we should pay attention to that it could evolve to do that. Because, you know, look, if you look at it today, it's like, you know, a bunch of people creating short form videos, mostly around entertainment, somewhat around learning, you know, et cetera. But on the other hand, if you said, well, say they were doing a map and they understood where everyone was and they understood, you know, kind of like uh, they used it to influence uh, by outside foreign agent, you know, our political um, you know, what's going on in politics, those kinds of things, you know, those kinds of things would be future concerns. I don't think those concerns are, 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 are present today, but I think the question and how to navigate those future concerns, it's a good thing to bring up the question. I think banning it today is, is a political move to grandstand, given that there is no current, like, activity threat. Um, all right, we're going to end on something you're not expecting. You gave a commencement address at Vanderbilt a few months ago, not on big tech, not on what any of us would expect, but a commencement address on friendship. I'm the LinkedIn guy. I'm not going to tell you otherwise. Your network's important. But more than that, friends will be absolutely central to your sense of happiness, connection, and meaning. 
Why? Well, you know, the, these moments, the commencements are these special moments in people's lives by which they go, I, I'm emerging from university. I'm 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 now kind of heading out to society. I'm going to have a, a, a you know I'm going to do work. I'm going to have a life. I'm going to have a family. I'm going to do all these things. What is the most important things that you learn in order to do that? And I think that you know part of what makes all of our lives uh, so uh, uh, kind of uh, impactful, meaningful, capable is our friendships, right? You know, life is a team sport. We go through it with our friends. And, and, and I think focusing on that is really important. Unexpected advice from a tech mogul. Uh, Reid Hoffman, thank you for that conversation. Such an interesting one. Also just in, Formula One has just canceled next year's Chinese Grand Prix due to COVID restrictions, or due to COVID, I should say, as protests over those restrictions have been sweeping the nation. We'll have details for you ahead. Plus Harrison Ford heading back to the silver screen in his iconic role as Indiana Jones. See what they did to hide? His age. More CNN this morning to come after the break. How many of you believe your candidate is going to win? I'm very pessimistic. Um, it, it, it's uh, we, we we keep saying we're we're a, a blue state, and uh, the numbers are showing we're not a blue state. Yeah. Can't wait for that. I know. It's been interesting to talk to voters. Hello. Good morning, everyone. That was, by the way, part of my interview with the panel of Georgia voters. They laid it all out on the table on what they want to see. And is it right? The, the responses were uh, extremely interesting. One that you and I were talking about. We're going to talk about the Trump effect. So many oh. Georgians have already voted. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And Two more. Days away. And more. The last day of early voting, I think, is today, right? Or today or tomorrow? Today. Today. So the, the, this morning, we have new CNN polls out of Georgia with just days to go until the Senate runoff. We're going to be live in Atlanta for you. Also, speakership shutdown. Tensions are building within the Republican showdown, I should say. Tensions are building within the Republican Party over whether Kevin McCarthy should be the leader and his critics, as his critics, gear up for a potential floor fight. Also, President Biden says he might be willing to talk to President Putin, but he has conditions. Russia is casting doubt on whether or not a conversation like that could ever happen. We'll tell you about the issue that they say could complicate any talks between Biden and Putin. But first, this morning, we start with the race for that last remaining Senate seat of the 2022 midterms. It is extremely tight with just four days to go until voters have actual Election Day. We talked about the early voting numbers But look at these new CNN numbers, because Georgia's incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, who is trying to hold on to his seat there in Georgia, has a slim four-point lead over the Republican challenger Herschel Walker within the margin of error, I should note. Former President Obama once again campaigning with Warnock, telling supporters he thinks it's critical that they go and vote for Tuesday's runoff. Some folks are asking, well, if Democrats already have control of the Senate, why, why does this matter? What's the, what's the difference between 50 and 51? The answer is a lot. <laughs> the answer is a lot. Diane Gallagher is live for CNN this morning in Atlanta. Diane, what is the latest on the race as it stands this Friday? 
You know, Caitlin, you guys talked about it's the last day of early voting here in Georgia. You can see the line behind me starting to form. Uh, They are starting to let those voters in so they can cast their ballots. More than a million Georgians already done that. And they anticipate today to be very busy, long lines likely across the state. You mentioned that CNN poll of likely voters where uh, Raphael Warnock getting 52 percent, Herschel Walker 48 percent, as you said, still within the margin of error. But that is is a slightly more comfortable lead than Warnock had over Walker in the general election. Of course, neither got 50 percent, and that's why we're here today for this runoff. But there were other aspects of that uh, poll that were very interesting, including asking those likely voters if the candidate was well qualified. Now, remember, 48 percent of voters said that they would vote for Herschel Walker, but only 27 percent said they considered him well qualified and 33 percent that he had good judgment. Now, in the run up to Election Day on Tuesday and trying to get all of the voters out today on this final day of early voting, uh, both campaigns have employed very different strategies. It appears uh, Raphael Warnock, as you saw, the incumbent Democrat bringing in those heavy hitting surrogates like former President Obama, a very aggressive campaign schedule. Herschel Walker, a little bit more relaxed schedule. He was with Lindsey Graham last night uh, trying to talk to his supporters. Also talking about ad spending, Caitlin, Don, Poppy, astronomical numbers, more than $77 million for this four-week runoff. But Democrats outspending Republicans two to one. And look, Raphael Warnock, has outspent all of the GOP spending combined just as a candidate. Yeah, cash just pouring into that race. But, Dan, I want to ask you, because you're on the ground in Atlanta. I was there on Monday. I saw Senator Warnock. He, he was pretty easy to talk to. He was standing outside a bus greeting students at Kennesaw mm-hmm. State. Herschel Walker has not been the same. And I was looking at some reporting that you had because you were at that Walker rally last night. He is not taking questions from reporters. And it seems he's not even letting reporters really get close to him, depending on, on which outlet you work for. Uh, yeah, it's it's been months since Herschel Walker has held uh, what we call a gaggle, where they come and talk to press after one of these events uh, that a candidate holds. It has been since well before the general election. I haven't experienced any of those uh, during the runoff. And at this point, they're not letting us even get close to the candidate after his events to answer any sort of questions. So we even had the opportunity. But he did do an exclusive interview once again uh, with a friendly network immediately afterward. But we were told that we had to stand back and couldn't come near Herschel Walker. Diane Gallagher, thank you. Ahead, Don spoke with Georgia voters on the state of the race. What do they think? What are they thinking of when they go and cast their ballots in this election? We'll show you that interview coming up. New CNN reporting this morning, tensions building within the GOP as House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and conservative headliners gear up for a potential fight on the chamber floor over his speakership bid. Let's go straight to CNN's Melanie Zanona, live on Capitol Hill for us this morning. Good morning to you. How are McCartney and his team preparing for a fight? Yeah, good morning to you, Don. Let me first explain how the speaker's vote would actually work. So under House rules, if no candidate secures a majority of the vote on the first round, then the House just keeps voting until somebody does. The last time it went to multiple ballots was in 1923. And the anti-McCarthy group is hoping that if McCarthy can't get it on the first round, that he'll drop out and then they can rally around an alternative. Congressman Bob Good, a member of the Freedom Caucus, told us that there are quiet talks going on to recruit a candidate for that exact scenario. But 
McCarthy is signaling he's not going to go down that easily and that he's prepared to go through as many rounds of voting as it takes. He also has his allies promising to keep voting for McCarthy on multiple rounds of voting. And so we could potentially see a very messy and chaotic process on the House floor, which is not what Republicans want heading into their into their new majority. But given the small margins, it is a distinct possibility, Don. Is there any feeling on the Hill that this is all one big bluff from the Freedom Caucus? Well, you know, Kevin McCarthy certainly feels like the Freedom Caucus is bluffing, but they feel like McCarthy is bluffing, that he's not actually going to go to the floor if he knows he doesn't have the votes. And I would also point out the Freedom Caucus met with a House parliamentarian earlier this week to get a briefing on how the House floor procedures and rules works for the Speaker's vote. So perhaps a sign that they are taking this seriously and they do mean business about a floor fight. But at the end of the day, this seems to be shaping up to be a political game of chicken, Don. All right, Melanie, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Also, this just in this morning, Formula One has canceled the 2023 Chinese Grand Prix, citing COVID difficulties. The sport had been set to return to China for the first race since 2019 there. It would have been the first home race for the only Chinese driver in F1. We've shown you these protests, especially this week, breaking out over China, over its COVID, zero COVID policies. CNN now reports that China may soften some of those strict COVID restrictions. This morning in Idaho, police are still searching for clues into that murder of the four University of Idaho students in their off-campus home. It's been weeks. There have been no arrests, still no motive that we have heard of publicly established. They say now there may have been a sixth person living at the address that they're trying to track down. They don't believe the person was at home at the time. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live in Moscow, Idaho. She's been on the ground covering this. Veronica, still so many questions, but have you learned anything new about at least what police are looking at right now? Well, Caitlin, with no suspects identified, there is an intense focus on anyone who was in and out of that house. And now we know there was a sixth person on the lease. For the first time, police tell CNN there may have been six people living at the house where four University of Idaho students were killed. Until now, police have only released information about five of the roommates, three of the victims and two other roommates who were not harmed. A fourth victim, Ethan Chapin, did not live at the home. A spokesperson for the Moscow Police Department tells CNN investigators are aware of a sixth person who could have potentially lived at the residence. That person was not at the residence on the night of the murders. An employee with the property management company for the home tells CNN that six people are listed on the lease, but they would not release the names. It remains unclear if that sixth person lived at the property at any point. We asked police if they have found this potential sixth roommate, questioned them and cleared them as a suspect. All they could tell us is that they continue to investigate anyone who potentially has information about this case. Kaylee Gonsalves' mother tells CNN, quote, Kaylee had never mentioned that they were looking for a sixth roommate. If there was a sixth person on that lease, I didn't know about it. But she also said she'd never been to the home and didn't know the other roommates besides Kaylee's best friend and victim, Madison Mogan. The Gonsalves family, among those at the University of Idaho Candlelight Vigil, where hundreds of students came together to honor their fallen classmates. They shared everything. They eventually get into the same apartment together. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. We did reach out to multiple people connected to the home and we have not yet heard back. So we don't know if that person was living at the home at the time of the attacks. Caitlin. Yeah, still so many questions. Veronica, thank you. 
President Biden says he is open to a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, but under certain conditions. Listen. I have no immediate plans to contact Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin is, let me choose my words very carefully. I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he wants, has in mind. But just moments ago, a Kremlin spokesperson casting doubt on those talks, given the U.S. doesn't recognize the terrorists as terror territories, I should say, it is legally annexed. So CNN's Matthew Chance joins us now live from Kiev, Ukraine, with the very latest on this. Hello to you this, this morning here in the United States. What do, are we likely to see talks? I mean, this is pretty complicated, Matthew. It is pretty complicated, Don, but these remarks by President Biden were the furthest he's gone, to my knowledge anyway, in suggesting that he would be open to the possibility of talks with the Russian president over the future of the conflict in Ukraine. But of course, we have to remember there's not an appetite on either side at the moment, either on the Ukrainian or the Russian side, to sit down at the negotiating table. The Russians have still got it into their minds that they're going to be pressing ahead with what they call their special military operation. The Ukrainians are saying they want a complete withdrawal of all occupied territory by Russian forces, including the strategic Crimean Peninsula as well. And so at the moment, uh, very little sign, despite the words of President Biden, that there's any prospect of, of peace talks, unfortunately, because that means the war will continue and it is getting increasingly bloody, Don. And we're just getting word that Ukrainian embassies around the world are, are getting threats. What do you know about that? Yeah, I'm just looking at that uh, alert that's just come in now. That's right. There's been some incidents in Ukrainian embassies around the world. A couple of days ago, there was a letter bomb, apparently, that was sent to the embassy in Madrid. It injured a Ukrainian uh, diplomat there. Not seriously, but nevertheless, uh, it was a serious concern. And they took steps to raise security in embassies uh, around the world, the Ukrainians, that is. Uh, in the last few minutes, it's been confirmed by the Ukrainian foreign ministry that a bunch of embassies, Hungary, the Netherlands, Poland, Italy, Austria, some others as well, They've received these horrific letters containing blood and the eyes, apparently, of animals. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, really bad, really disgusting. Uh, they don't know who's responsible for it. But obviously, um, very worrying and very disturbing. And there's an invest investigation now underway in all of those places, I expect, to try and get to the bottom of this. Ah, Matthew Chance and Keith, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. Coming up on CNN This Morning, 10 students suffering suspected overdoses at a middle school. This is in California. Also, wait until you hear about this. Teenagers' brains are now aging faster than normal because of the stress of the COVID pandemic. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will explain ahead. All right, this morning, seven students at a Los Angeles area middle school have been hospitalized after a suspected overdose. It's a total of 10 students that have been evaluated. We don't yet know what the substance in question actually was. We do know it was not fentanyl. That had been a, a primary concern. According to the Los Angeles Fire Department, authorities and school personnel systematically searched the entire school premises to make sure no other students were sick. The district says that the school is safe. It's not clear how the students are doing this morning. Big questions remain, though. It was terrifying for every parent out there. All right, a new study says the stress of the COVID pandemic appears to have actually physically changed teenagers' brains 
aging them faster than normal. Let's go to our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who joins us. Is this like from staring mm. at screens and phones? What, why did this happen? Stress. Well, I, I got to tell you, first of all, you know, I have three teenage girls at, at home. So, yep. you know, we saw this personally. And um, now we're, when I was starting to understand and get a better idea of what exactly was happening to teenagers and get a good idea of what was happening to their brains specifically, a lot of it's what you say. I mean, it, you know, it was the uncertainty of what was happening during the pandemic. But a lot of it also was the, the um, sort of reduced social structure of being around friends and the social development that simply happens by being around friends and other people, you know, during your teenage years in particular. We know there's been lots of what are called internalizing symptoms that develop. People had increased rates of anxiety and depression. What was so fascinating, even before the pandemic, there was a study going on where they were looking at adolescent brains, doing these MRI scans every couple of years, trying to understand how brains change specifically during that period of time. And, and so they had these studies already underway. Pandemic happens. They continue the study. So now they can look at brains before the pandemic and then during the pandemic. And what they found was, was pretty staggering. Let me show you here on this, on this brain model, if I can. Um, basically, they show that the brains aged much more quickly. What does that mean? Hmm. This area of the brain over here, which is called the cortex, think of that like as the bark on a tree, the outer layer. It got thin, thinner. That happens with age. It happened much more quickly during the pandemic for these adolescent brains. That's the area of the brain that's responsible for executive thinking, for example. At the same time, you look deep into the brain, areas over here, which are responsible for your ability to regulate emotions, for example, they aged more quickly as well. So all these things were sort of happening simultaneously. And, and you know, it was something that they could actually study in these children because, again, they had these scans before the pandemic and then again at least a year into the pandemic. So teenagers, we know, Sanjay, is, you know, they like to rebel, right? And so they spend a lot of time with their parents, which I think was constricting for them. And usually how they sort of gain independence is through sure. their friends and sure. the camaraderie that they have, right, these relationships. But my question, right. my question is, Look, I don't think you can reverse it. I mean, you're, you, know, you would know better than me, but how can, you, can it be normalized now? How long does it take at least to go back to normal, if, if you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, so, Don, you know, it's interesting because there are some things in life and in, within medicine that just are without precedent. We don't really have a lot to base this on in terms of what is likely to happen in the future. What we can say is this, is that the, the types of changes that were seen in the brains during that time period within a year, so a short time period, the end of 2020, they saw these changes. They typically take years and years to develop those types of changes, and they're typically associated with what are known as adverse childhood experiences, meaning witnessing violence, witnessing things that are really traumatic as a child. Those are the types of things that typically lead to these sorts of changes. We saw them much more quickly within a year. They, it may be hard to read that screen there, but basically you saw more what are known as internalizing symptoms, anxiety, isolation, depression. Mm -hmm. You didn't see an increase in what are known as externalizing symptoms. Those are, um, you know, rule breaking, aggressiveness, violence, things like that. So that was something. Your question, how long does it last? We don't know. I mean, could there be a reversal of some of those changes? Perhaps. And that is the hope. I mean, the, the study is going to continue for that very reason. I guess also the, the follow to what Don is saying, you know, can you undo it basically, is now that kids are mo most, mo most of them 
returning to school, they're back around their friends, they're not having the same kind of restrictions like at the height of pandemic. Does that, can it help, if it developed as quickly as it did, can it help now that they're back to normal and easing that faster? That, that, that is absolutely the hope, Caitlin. I mean, you know, but I, I want to be careful here because, you know, we are seeing something that is without precedent. So to try and extrapolate what this might look like in a couple of years, we didn't have MRI scanning during the last pandemic, 1918, 1919. What we do know, and I guess this is a little bit optimistic is in a good way, is that is that after the 1918-1919 pandemic, there was this earnest return to normalcy. There were the roaring 20s that came back after that 1918 uh, flu pandemic. Might that happen here as well? And might we see that reflected in the brains of these adolescents? That, that, is, that is certainly the hope. Yeah. Doctor, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Good Thanks, to see Sunday. you as always. The Georgia Senate runoff is underway and early voting numbers have reached historic highs. I spoke with eight Georgia voters, all with a different perspective on the race. And we're going to bring you that conversation. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up for us, we just learned... Some good news for U.S. soccer at the World Cup. The star, Christian Pulisic, is on track to play in the knockout round against the Netherlands tomorrow morning. His status was in jeopardy after he was injured during his game-winning goal. We have two-time World Cup champ Julie Foudy to talk about the big game. Also, two hero cops going beyond the call to save a nine-year-old boy who fell through the ice. Dramatic video of that rescue is ahead. And President Biden shaking up Democrats in the entire state of Iowa by announcing he wants to make South Carolina the first primary state. Well, just four days to go until the Senate runoff election in Georgia. Just in, we have some new numbers, new early voting numbers that are shattering a record here. We're told that 1.5 million people have cast their votes so far, 1.5 million. And I want to get an idea of what's on voters' minds in this final stretch. So I spoke with Herschel Walker supporters, Senator Raphael Warnock supporters, plus voters who split their ticket in this last in last month's election between Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Senator Warnock. And one person from a group who could decide it all, and that's undecided voters. Listen to this conversation. Here it is. Okay, so we have the Walker supporters who are up top, one undecided. We have the Warnock supporters on the bottom. Some, two of them, are Warnock-Kemp supporters. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Okay, so let's dive right into it. For those of you who are supporting Raphael Warnock, is it more that you like him as a candidate and the job that he's done as senator, or... Are you more motivated by wanting to vote against Herschel Walker? I'm going to start with you, Gabriel. I'm more in favor of Warnock, the candidate, because for me personally, I can relate to Senator Warnock. He's been in the community in Georgia. He was a pastor of MLK's church in Ebenezer. He he doesn't let Christianity be. He He's a Christian pastor who protects a woman's right to choose, who protects the rights of LGBTQ allies, and he doesn't let Republicans have a monopoly on Christianity, and I personally I personally like him as a candidate. Okay, Robert, I see you're shaking your head. Do you want to get in on this? Uh, just well-spoken there. Um, I'd like to just go a little bit further in there to um, integrity, honesty, uh, speak. When you are for a subject, uh, let's, let's go into the abortion. Um, Talk to talk. Uh, don't don't be uh, anti-abortion and then have abortions uh, that you paid for. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's interesting because um, let me, I want to go to Lynn. All right, Lynn, uh, you are pro-life. Yes. You voted for, I Brian, am yeah, you voted for Brian Kemp uh, for governor, Republican governor. You appeared in an ad for Senator Warnock about your decision to split your, your ballot in November, voting for Warnock, a Democrat, mm-hmm. Kemp, a Republican. Brian Kemp mm-hmm. has campaigned for Herschel Walker. What do you think about that? Well, <clears throat> I pretty much uh, voted Republican my whole life until the last six years. And I would say the biggest disqualifier uh, for my voting for Herschel Walker was <clears throat> that he was Trump endorsed. And that had a that had a big factor there. Um, I was able to meet Reverend Warnock and I, I am very impressed with him. I feel like he will do a lot for the poor and he will do a lot for low income families, which might even encourage uh, more women to be able to keep their babies because they're getting more help from the government. And I've been disappointed uh, that the Republicans who are pro-life don't want to don't want to help that. So I've kind of come to see uh, my faith uh, more in the light of not Republican or Democrat, but kind of looking at each each issue, each mm-hmm. election and so forth and, and weighing many factors. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you said because uh, of the, uh, because of Donald Trump of supporting Donald Trump. That is a big factor now. A lot of people are saying uh, that it's time for the party to move on past Trump. Did that play into your decision? Yeah, I felt like we've got to stomp that out. I really did. I feel like, especially after January 6th, I I just had my knee replaced and I was sitting in front of the television all day and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And most of my friends who still support Trump have been totally silent on that and haven't spoken out about that. And it really bothered me. Lisa, I want to follow up with you because one of the the previous folks talked about abortion. I know that you're a conservative. You've met Herschel Walker at campaign events. Are you at all troubled by the allegations against Herschel Walker that he paid for an abortion? As far as a woman's right to choose, I support the life of the child from conception until natural death. The choice was made when the child was conceived. And as far as um, you know, religion and Christianity, the Bible is clear about a child being formed in the womb, even from the beginning. And the life of the child is valuable. You know, if a woman's uh, life is in danger, that may be something different. Or, yeah. you know, in, in, inside of incest or 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 rape, you know, but that is allowed in the law. So the allegations against the women, no, you have no issue with it? It's an allegation. It has okay. not been proven. And the attorney who brought for, brought it forth, she did the same thing to Herman Cain and others. Okay. Uh, Kavanaugh. So um, she's not valid. Okay. Um, as far as I'm concerned. All right, Marcelo, are you, look, are you having an issue with that? Uh, well, yeah, yes. Uh, I, I guess if we go back to the very basic uh, comparison between the two character uh, between the two candidates, to me, uh, the contrast is significant and easy to see. One, uh, Warnock, Senator Warnock, seems to me to be a very good individual, honest, uh, Christian, as somebody mentioned earlier. And I have some serious concerns with Herschel Walker's character, uh, his honesty, his uh, approach to family life. So clearly, from my perspective, I view 
uh, Walker as a flawed candidate. And unfortunately, the Republican Party has done a disservice to the people of Georgia by putting forth that kind of a candidate. I voted for Kemp. I was more than willing to listen and see if they had uh, put forth uh, a viable, a credible candidate on the, uh, uh, for senator, but they did not. So ultimately, for me, the decision was easy. Um, and, 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 you know, clearly it was based on character, character matters, qualifications matter. And I don't see Walker as having any of those. I want to say that I don't know about you, but I don't want to be judged on something I may or may not have done 20 years ago. And the issues against Warnock, and there are a lot of them that you are simply not bringing up in this call, are recent. But the thing is, I'm not vote. I think they're disingenuous if they're talking about voting on character. We've got a choice right now. We have got a, a split Senate. I'm going to vote on which candidate is going to bring balance to the Senate because we know how Raphael Warnock's going to vote. He's going to vote with Biden almost all the time on very far left wing uh, positions where the same thing will be true with, with, uh, with Walker. He's going to vote with the GOP almost all the time as well. The thing is, is we need balance. I don't think we need any extremes from the left or from the right. I think it needs to bring balance. And the best way to bring balance to this is to uh, choose how somebody is going to vote when they're in the Senate, not what they may or may not have done 20 years ago. Robert, Robert, you're, you're raising your hand. Yeah, I, I, I would like to opine on the, the far left comment. Um, uh, our, our president is not a far left. He's a centrist. Um, and it, it, he's, he's not an extremist. Let's just go with a centrist. Um, and, and, and to have somebody who doesn't even live in Georgia uh, trying to run for a, a position in the state of Georgia, I, I find that appalling in, in itself. Um, he, he's a resident of Texas. What's he running in Georgia for? Yeah. Uh, Scotty, you've been awfully quiet. Uh, so I want to hear what you have to say about this. What did you say? He's a, they said he's a resident of Texas and not of Georgia. You're a supporter. What do you think? Well, um, I am not 100% aware that Herschel Walker is still a Texas resident. I know that he lived there prior to living in Georgia, but um, I believe that Herschel Walker meets the qualifications to run here. Um, but I'm I'm definitely voting for Walker because unlike Senator Warnock, um, Walker has been very clear on his positions regarding the issues. If you watch the debate between Walker and Warnock, um, Warnock would not answer any questions directly. He just kind of danced around them like a typical politician and you know, for him to only be in the Senate for one year, that's pretty remarkable that he's, you know, able to do that. And um, I, I, I just don't think that we need to have six more years of Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate, especially as a pastor who openly supports things that are contradictory to the Bible that you're supposed to be preaching every Sunday. Charles, Lewis, I want to hear more from you because you're an undecided voter. How are you going to 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 pick in, in just these last few few days here? I'm a business owner. I am, uh, you know, kind of worried about you know about my business and how it thrives. And then on the flip side, you know, I'm also uh, a minority uh, that um, actually, um, you know, some of the some of the things that happens. To minorities, you know, I, I feel, 
you know, kind of strong that those things need to be uh, taken care of too. So it's kind of a catch 22. So I, I just kind of want to do, I feel like maybe I needed to do a little bit more research on on more uh, a Walker and uh, Warnock to see what are they going to do for the people instead of just for their uh, their uh, their side. Are you leaning a certain way? I'm not for sure. You're not for sure. Not for sure. Not for sure. Uh, I, I, are you just being coy with us because you don't want us to know? I mean, you've had a lot of time to make up your mind. Yeah, sort of. Sort of. I mean, like I said, uh, originally I did vote for, uh, you know, I, work, I, I voted for uh, Warnock, but, you know, like I said, um, you know, Herschel Walker has some points that benefit me too. Okay. So that's, that's the catch-22. How many of you believe your candidate is going to win? Mm. That's uh, you don't believe Warnock's going to win, uh, Robert? Were you not raising your hand? I just didn't see it. I, I, I no, I, I am. I'm very pessimistic. Um, it, yeah. it, it's uh, we, we we keep saying we're we're a, a blue state, and uh, the numbers are showing we're not a blue state. Okay, listen, this, this was all fascinating. I'm so glad. I wish we had more time. I'm sorry we don't. But I appreciate you. I, I, I love everyone giving their perspectives. And best of luck to all of you. I really, really do appreciate that you joined us. Thank you so much. I loved that. Yeah. You did? I, I loved that. Well, I told you, you. I said sometimes it's hard on tape, you know, like ten. I wanted more from them. I, yeah. I loved it because, you know what, they, one woman said to you, well, you know, I think she's pro-life. And she essentially said, but I'm voting for Warnock uh, because I believe that he—, he uh, supports giving sort of more resources to people that maybe they will choose to have the child. I think she I, she saw some nuance to it, and she reflected what we often ask lawmakers about. It was I'm really interesting. It's uh, it, it, as you know, you cover these. She was issues just there. These issues are more nuanced than many times, and you know, people, especially yes. people who are so entrenched in politics, and many times as um, portrayed in the media, it's very nuanced, and people are not always so far left and so far right. They have some issues. They have some uh, values and things that they that are important to them that are conservative, and some that are maybe more liberal. Yeah. And it's not. They're just not so. That's what's always so great to hear from them directly because yeah. these things that we talk about and these big views, and when we talk to lawmakers, it, listening to them there, they just voters can so simply just distill like their thinking on something, and they're like, yeah. God, this is how I feel. Yeah. It's and not just complicated. So, just so you know, by the way, we had to cut it down for time for television, right? So I'm, I, you know, just, and I'm just really happy that they were able to share yeah. their yeah. views because we wanted a, a lot to hear a lot more from them and they yeah. spoke right. to us for quite some time. Yeah, and obviously don't forget to join us. The Georgia runoff between Raphael Warnock, the senator, and Herschel Walker, his Republican challenger, that's on Tuesday and our coverage will start on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. I really actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Usually I'm like, oh my gosh, this one I'm looking forward to. It's going to be, it's Yeah, gonna... it'll be fascinating. Yeah. Also this morning, Harrison Ford heading back to the silver screen in his iconic role as Indiana Jones. But we're going to tell you what they did to maybe disguise his age a little bit. Plus, star soccer player Christian Pulisic speaking to the media for the first time since his game-winning goal sent, the t- sent Team USA to the knockout round. 
What did it feel to you now that you have that forever moment? I'm hoping I haven't had that moment yet, to be honest. I'm hoping it's in front of me. not just the years, honey, it's the miles. Well, it's been many years since Harrison Ford said those words as Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, more than 40. In fact, goodness, now the fifth installment of the franchise, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is heading to theaters next summer, and we just got our first look at the teaser trailer. Here it is. I don't believe in magic few times in my life I've seen things things I can't explain and I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe it's how hard you believe it all right so what do we know which I'm trying to explain this graphic here. The new installment <laughs> mostly takes place, okay, it takes place in 1969. The first Raiders of the Lost Ark was set in 1936, but the film opens in 1944. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, they use de-aging technology to have Indy fighting Nazis in a castle. Sorry, hey, you got that? Wait, wait, wait. Indy? A few times. Yeah. Is that what they Lady call him? Indiana Jones, I guess, yes. So, oh, they make him younger. We're, I was wondering this morning when we discussed this on our editorial calls, can they do that for us? Is there a de-aging setting us? in well, the control room? You well know how young you look. <laughs> you do not need that filter. Or take the tape off afterwards. No, yeah, no you don't need it either. Just, of course, Caitlin does not <laughs> need it at all. That makes me think of that Indeed. quote that we had last week when he was with Walter Mondale on the debate stage. Oh, and I will they were asking, you know, if he was too old, and he was like, I'm not going to take advantage no, of my youth opponent's youth. Experience. That's so true. <laughs> all right, right, speaking of youth, Team USA's soccer coach, Greg Berhalter, is now saying that Christian Pulisic is on track to play in the team's match against the Netherlands tomorrow. This is crucial. His return was in jeopardy after he suffered a pelvic contusion. Remember, he scored the game-winning goal, putting his body on the line against Iran this week. And now, for the first time since he was injured, Pulisic took questions from the media about how he's doing. What did it feel to you now that you have that forever moment? It feels great to score in a World Cup. Um, Timmy knows what that's like. Um, I think... Uh, I'm hoping I haven't had that moment yet, to be honest. I'm hoping it's in front of me. So it feels great to be where we're at right now, but uh, there's still more to come. Still more to come. So joining us now is two-time World Cup champion, Julie Foody. Julie, thank you so much for, Foudy, for, excuse me, for being here with us this morning. A question for you about Christian Pulisic and him joining and what that means for the team if he is out on track to play when they play the Netherlands tomorrow. Oh, it's it's enormous. Having him healthy and able to go uh, is going to be huge for the United States, as we know. One of the biggest challenges for this young team has been knocking in goals, and he's had a hand in the two goals they, they scored in the group stage, obviously the one against Iran, and then he assisted in the Tim Weah goal in the very first game. Um, 
And so a lot of a lot of fans are very eagerly when he spoke last night about being able to play and thinking he'd be able to play. Everyone is with bated breath thinking, "Okay, how is this going to go? Because the United States really revolves around his his runs, his presence and his ability to lift the team. Can we talk about yesterday's uh, Germany Costa Rica game with a big milestone not in terms of the players, but in terms of the ref, an all-female referee crew. I just wonder what it was like for you to see that. Oh, a long time coming. Poppy, yes, uh, a little bit overdue for sure. But the fact that you had three women refing that game, Stephanie Frappor, who's one of the um, legendary female refs, took the lead officiating position, Uh, She's done World Cup qualifiers before. She's done Champions League before, but she had never, no female has ever refed a men's World Cup game. And she was the first. She has a lot of firsts in her career. And the fact that it was in Qatar, which, as we know, um, their issues with women's rights and their suppression of women's rights is front and center at this World Cup. Uh, It was a big step, I think, for, for a lot of men and women to see. You've been paying, you mentioned women's rights. Uh, a lot has been pay up, paid this time to um, just rights in general for these games. Is, is, it, is it taking a bigger, is it a bigger priority, you think, this time than any time? Or is it always an issue in these games? Don, you cut out a little bit there. What was the, what was the first part of it you said? I said the rights have really taken a priority role, uh, a big role in, in yes. the games this time. And is it always this way? Because it seems like it's playing out more. And I'm not sure if it has to do with the venue or just the yeah. times that we're in, or maybe it's a combination. I think World Cups are always a microcosm of what's happening in life. But the fact that it's taking place in Qatar with all the controversy around the bid, uh, around the setting, having to switch to the winter time from the summer because of the heat, the fact that um, it's shown that obviously there were some nefarious things that were happening behind the scenes with this bid and, and obviously there are human rights issues with migrant worker abuse and all the things we've been talking about. You've also seen, I mean, there's been so much drama on the field, as we know, which has been crazy. It's hard to be a productive human with all this World Cup going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also mm-hmm. know that there's been drama happening off the field as well. People coming into stadiums not able to to wear shirts, for example, that have rainbow Uh, flags on them, or as we've seen with the players, unable to wear the armbands with the rainbow insignia. So, uh, yes, this is is one that I think actually has been talked about more because of the fact that it's in Qatar. Absolutely. You talked about it interfering with the work (laughs) schedule. At least tomorrow's game is going to be on a Saturday whenever we're watching it at 10 a.m. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Two-time FIFA Women's World Champ. And gold, um, Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, you know. just that. Quite a career. Julie, no big thank deal. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so big thing overnight. Strike averted. The Senate passed legislation to keep rail workers on the job. Ahead, we're going to be joined by a railroadway mechanic who says the Biden administration sold him out. And a dramatic rescue of a little boy who fell through an icy pond. How two police officers went beyond the call of duty to save his life. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Two Aurora police officers are being hailed as heroes for going beyond the call of duty by jumping into a frozen pond to rescue a nine-year-old little boy who had fallen through the ice trying to retrieve his football. Our Adrian Broaddus has the story. 911, what's the address of your emergency? We have a person drowning. Drowning? Where? It was the day before Thanksgiving. Water rescue. We have a nine-year-old that fell in the water and they're not able to get out. Tyshawn is the nine-year-old who fell through the ice. I think about my Tyshawn's mom, Mary Wilkins, was at work. I was so scared. And then when I got that call from them, they saying he was not responding and stuff. My mind was gone. Aurora police responding with water rescue kits. Get back to him. Officers Andrew Soderlin and Alex Lopez right there. didn't think twice about entering the water. The child and an adult who tried to rescue him, exhausted. The winter coats that they were wearing, you know, that became very heavy for everybody. Then, finally, Tyshawn and the officers, a little bruised. I have bumps, bruises, a lot of kind of scrapes and stuff from breaking the ice. Uh, I lost my my wedding ring in the pond as well. I thought my baby was not going to be here. And I'm thankful for him. Thankful to spend another holiday with her son and grateful for the officers who didn't hesitate. I'm very excited, nervous. Can't wait to meet these And when expressing gratitude. My Mary, thank you so much for saving me. Of course, of course. Sometimes a hug says it best. Of course, how are you? I don't Thank you. Of course, of course. Thank you so much. Adrian Broaddus, CNN, Chicago. I'm glad everything turned out okay. Yeah. For the best, right? Amazing story. Thank goodness for the officers. Thank goodness he's okay. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. We're so happy you're here. Hope you had a good week, and we're headed into the weekend right now. It is Friday, December 2nd. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We have a lot to get to this morning, so let's catch you up on the five big stories on CNN This Morning. So from Wall Street to the White House uh, and from Main Street to the Fed, they're all rooting for a healthy cooldown in the super strong jobs market. It is the Goldilocks metaphor that we're talking about here. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, just to satisfy the Fed. That is uh, a too strong a job market. It doesn't fuel more inflation and not so weak that it foreshadows a recession next year. So there's a lot to get to. Also, brand new CNN polling this morning on next week's critical Senate runoff election in Georgia. It has Democrat Raphael Warnock clinging to a pretty narrow lead over his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Former President Obama was on the campaign trail with Warnock in Georgia last night and mocked a comment that Walker made at a campaign event where he talked about better, it's better to be a werewolf than a vampire. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be, except for a United States senator. Heard the applause there. Also, former top White House lawyers Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin are both being ordered to provide additional grand jury testimony. This is part of the Justice Department's criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Twitter has suspended Kanye West, saying he violated the rule against incitement to violence by posing an image of a swastika inside the Star of David. 
That was only hours after West praised Hitler during an appearance on Infowars with conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Also today, China is signaling it may ease its zero-tolerance COVID policy that has sparked to those stunning wave of protests that we saw in at least 19 cities. A top official is now saying that the country is facing a, quote, new stage and mission in pandemic control. But first, moderation. Moderation. That is what the White House is hoping to see at the bottom of the hour. When the Labor Department releases the November jobs numbers, President Joe Biden has enjoyed a string of economic reports over the past week. Well, that seemed to suggest that inflation could be cooling off. MJ Lee, live for CNN this morning at the White House. Good morning to you, MJ. What is the White House hoping to see in these November jobs numbers reports coming out later this hour? Hey, Don. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That moderation really is the key word today. Uh, White House officials are hoping to see somewhere in the ballpark of around 200,000 new jobs created last month. And that would really further convince the White House that the economy is making the transition that it wants to see after a week of some positive economic data from their perspective. Uh, For example, there was this key measure of consumer prices uh, that slowed a little bit in October. And then quarter three GDP growth was revised up, which really shows uh, overall resilience in the economy. Of course, we had the Fed chair also suggesting that interest rate hikes could get less aggressive as early as this month. And then, of course, the big one, it's gas prices that are continuing to fall. That's been great news for the White House. So, you know, the White House is cognizant that things can always take a turn. But in the big picture, they do feel like things are starting to move in the right direction. All right. MJ Lee at the White House. MJ, thank you very much. All right. So this morning, a new deal has been reached between railroad companies and labor unions that is headed to President Biden's desk to be signed into law. Once that happens, any strike would be illegal, meaning the strikers could be fired. This comes after an overwhelmingly bipartisan 80 to 15 vote in the Senate that approved this tentative agreement that was reached in September. But remember, four of the unions were holding out on it. What it does include is a 24% increase in wages over five years, one, only one though, paid sick day, improved health care benefits, and a little bit more schedule flexibility. However, senators rejected the union's demands for seven additional days of paid sick leave. The votes could stave off, the vote could stave off what would have been economically crippling in terms of a strike, costing $2 billion a day to the U.S. economy, also disrupting transportation of thousands of cars of food and other items, uh, pushing gas prices higher, halting shipment of new vehicles, stopping rail services for up to 7 million commuters a day, and also sending prices up during the holiday season. So joining us now, who better to talk about this? A roadway mechanic on the CSX Railroad, Reese Murtaugh. He is also the chairman of the Union Lodge in Richmond, Virginia, which has about 100 members. Reese, thank you so much for joining us this morning because this is such an important topic and it's it's no more important to anyone than you, I know. And when it comes to this, you voted for President Biden, but now you say you feel like he's turned his back on you. Why? Well, what we've seen with this great rail strike of 22 that has ended very undramatically is We've seen unionized workers right to bargain collectively get trampled on. Their voice has not been heard. They voted against a contract. We have a pro-labor president who loves to, you know, pat himself on the back for that. And when the going got tough, he turned his back on the people he's supposed to be looking out for. And when this bill 
that is now going to go to President Biden, pass the House. It had a separate measure that actually had seven paid sick days for you and your colleagues. That did not make it through the Senate. They voted against it. Are you asking President Biden not to sign this bill? It's a good question. Um, you don't go against what your members vote for. So, the, you know, shout out to Jamal Brown for getting that bill going and looking out for us. But the sick days was more of a distraction. The main attraction here is Joe Biden forced a contract on our unionized workers who voted against it. And listen, we don't want to strike, but the only way we can get a fair contract is to strike. That's our only leverage. The rail carriers do not negotiate in good faith. The Railway Labor Act does not have time limits on these contracts we negotiate. So that can mean we can be negotiating a contract for five years and we have no power to get a good contract. Our only leverage is to strike. And I feel like this whole process, the workers have kind of been demonized where it's like, y'all are trying to shut the economy down. You know, we're not. We're out here working 14 hours a day in all weather conditions. Most of us work outside. You know, we need some sick days. You know, why, why aren't you guys talking to the rail carriers? We're out here every day working, moving freight, making things happen. And when the leaders we vote in who are supposed to support us, you know, turn their back on us, yeah, the system's broken. I'm glad you said what you said about this isn't something you want. You're not seeking out a strike, but you feel like it's the only way and your colleagues that you, you can get what you feel like you need here. I was struck by a quote that you, you gave to someone about what your job is like. You said the conditions we work in affect us a great deal. We work 14 to 16 hour days. We're out in all weather conditions. We have tool bags on our backs while we're walking up and down the tracks. We're fixing stuff all day long. It's hard on our bodies. We're just never home. It is a hard life for a bunch of hard workers. And Reese, I know you're married, you have two daughters. What is it like to have those working conditions and have no paid sick leave? It's, you know, it's, it's unethical, it's not right. You know, we are literally moving, you know, commerce. We're making, you know, we're making it happen. And during the pandemic, we carried railroads on our backs. From 2018 to 2021, I worked as a system production traveling mechanic what that means was I traveled the East Coast from Southern Florida to the Canadian border, working on a rail gang where we replaced sections of rail. During a pandemic, all we were given to be essential workers was a letter from the Association of American Railroads saying, y'all are essential workers, you can drive on a shutdown road. We were given a bottle of hand sanitizer and a pack of disposable face masks. And basically we were said, hey, good luck. And we went out there and didn't skip a beat. We went out every day and worked. We didn't know what the pandemic was. We had to go to work and, you know, keep the trains moving. So we, you know, we deserve some uh, some support. You know, all the rail carriers want to put these, put these signs up outside of the rail terminals. Heroes work here. Well, you know, treat us like heroes. You know, treat us with some respect. Reese Murtaugh, it's really important that you joined us this morning. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Wow, what an interview. All right, the Senate runoff in Georgia. 
just four days away. And Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock has been running television ads highlighting a bizarre moment during his opponent Herschel Walker's campaign event. Watch this. You ever watch a stupid movie late at night hoping it's going to get better, don't get better, but you keep watching it anyway? Okay, I've seen this video. The other night I was watching this movie. I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Freak Night, or some kind of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if vampires are cool people. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> is he serious? Is he for real? A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I didn't want to be a vampire anymore. I want to be a werewolf. Yeah, y'all serious about this, right? That's one kind of political ad. While stumping for Warnock in Atlanta, former President Barack Obama weighed in on the vampire werewolf debate. Here he was. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself <laughs> when I was seven. <laughs> you can't write this stuff. Meanwhile, we're getting a better look at how this race is shaping up, and it could come down to the wire. According to a new CNN polling, 52% of likely voters say that they are throwing their support behind Raphael Warnock. 48% say that they are backing Herschel Walker. Things look a little better for Warnock, though, when and voters were asked about qualifications with 52 percent of likely voters saying that Warnock is well qualified for the job, while only 27 percent felt the same about Walker. Today is the last day of early voting for Georgia voters before the runoff on Tuesday. All right. And speaking of elections, big changes could be on the horizon for the 2024 Democratic presidential primary, if we have one, as President Biden is urging party leaders to change the order that states use to nominate their candidate. This would dramatically reshape the party's presidential process. It would mean the end of Iowa's long reign as the Democrats' first nominating contest. Biden and the Democratic National Committee are proposing South Carolina actually tip off the process. That would be a huge state for the get. And as you remember, it saved Biden two years ago after he had finished fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. Now, thanks to all of you, the heart of the Democratic Party, we just won and we've won big because of you. Biden and the DNC say this is an effort to elevate the diverse working class constituencies that helped carry him to the White House. It is being met with furious pushback, though, from New Hampshire lawmakers and party officials there. When it comes to Iowa, remember the disaster that happened in 2020 when the state struggled for days to de deliver results? After that was when the Democratic National Committee said they were going to reassess how they pick their candidates. So joining us now to talk about this is CNN's senior political analyst, John Avalon. Good morning. Morning. Lots to talk about here. <laughs> it's Maggie Hassan is not happy about this. No. Maggie Hassan is not happy about this. But look, you know, this is something that Democrats have been talking about for a long yeah. time. But political leaders, frankly, haven't had the courage to go forward because they were afraid they'd get punished if they were unsuccessful in shifting the primary schedule. The principle's real simple. You change the rules, you change the game. And Iowa self-owned itself out of this process, folks fear, after years, decades of being kind of the, the first kingmaker. But Biden upended things a lot by all of a sudden suggesting South Carolina out of the blue. Now, people see it as political payback. It is. I love me some South Carolina. My That's folks have lived there blue, 30 though. years. 
That's a, he, South Carolina is what made him the... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he's very much paying back Jim Clyburn and yeah. the voters who elevated him to the nomination. But that's usually not the best prism to judge what the right order should be. Other folks have been pushing for Michigan. Minnesota's been making a, a strong case. Uh, Poppy's for, home all, for all the obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, actually, there's a case to be made, right? More diverse than Iowa, but similar state in terms of, of, of the media market. Well, what about like a Nevada? Nevada's, you know, strong in there saying you got to have diversity. You know, Biden's plan would keep it sort of in, in the first month, which is really the critical calling time. I, I think you got to look at something like a rotating regional primary. You got to make sure these states aren't locked into place because that'll just perpetuate the same problem, different cast of characters. This is going to sound like a dumb question, but I bet no people such at home are wondering the same thing. Just explain why it matters so much where it is first. It is critical. Think about the amount of time and money and candidate attention that Iowa and New Hampshire get at the expense of the other 48 states. Yeah. Um, and the problem is when Iowa couldn't conclusively come up with a winner, folks are saying, well, what in for? In 2020. In 2020. Yeah. And the caucuses themselves, I think, are being questioned because it's not exactly, it's, 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 it's a homey process, but it's not necessarily representative. And this is one of the key questions. What's going to create the most representative results for the Democratic Party and for the nation? What reality? represents what America looks like? The Correct. diversity there. But some people say, well, if it had been South Carolina or whatever, maybe Kamala Harris or someone would have been a nominee or had a, more of a chance. But... Joe Biden has had strong support among African-Americans. Yes. I, I think that if Joe Biden, if, let's say, uh, for 2020, if South Carolina had been the first place, I think Joe Biden may have become the nominee even faster. Than oh, I, and I that's sure. that's to Poppy's question why it's so yeah. critical is that after he did so poorly in Iowa, New Hampshire, people were like, I don't know how this is going to yeah. look for Biden. Like, who does South it Carolina changed it. By the way, that is totally unprecedented. What Biden pulled off in 2020 is Amazing. unheard of because it's the momentum game from Iowa to New Hampshire that's made all the difference. And the fact that Democrats had the discipline to basically clear the field once. Isn't once he Biden doing that? I mean, yes, it would be beneficial to, to him, isn't he do, wanting to do this for for the party just more long term? Right, because it won't matter to him if he runs for re-election. There won't be a primary, right. unless someone primaries him, but I don't... These are one of the happen. many open questions, but it's one of the opportunities that's driving this shift, which, again, you know, Democratic nominees have been talking about for a long time the need to change this, and, and election reform should be on the top of people's minds, should be on Republicans' minds Hey, hey well. John, I know that we have to go, but I know you want to talk about um, yeah. the voter panel that we had in you, and, and go, go on. What did you want to talk you know, about it, quickly? One of the fascinating aspects about this Georgia race... And as someone who really cares about how we can overcome polarization and hyperpartisanship, is the role of faith in our politics, right? And how can we depolarize the role of faith? One opportunity, I think, is having a Democratic senator who is a reverend from Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, and what's fascinating is that some of the folks you talk to and some of the folks I've been talking to in Georgia, the rationalizations that are being used by evangelicals, largely white evangelicals, to support uh, Walker over an actual reverend. And it's really interesting. Now, not all of them have an easy time about it. You saw it from Georgia exit polls from CNN, though. Third of the Georgia voters in the, in the midterms were evangelical. 88% went for Walker. That's despite the record of domestic abuse, allegations of playing for abortions, mental illness, et cetera. So I've spoken to a bunch of folks. I've been trying to understand this. And it's, it's, it, it, for some, it comes just down to the raw politic of it. You know, we want a Republican in the seat. But it's interesting that Warnock's deep professional familiarity with faith is not swaying them. It may be enough to make the difference, you know, in, in this kind of a race because of those Kemp Warnock voters you were talking to. But I had folks say, look, even we have people who are active in the pro-life movement down in, in uh, Georgia, uh, Christian, com committed Christian conservatives say, well, you know, I don't know if we should believe those women. And if they do, I had one woman tell me, uh, <laughs> it blew my mind, um, that, uh, you know, he has so many children out of wedlock. Why would he pay for an abortion? <laughs> 
I mean, you know, so the ornate rationalizations that people are putting into place to justify the fact that they're not voting necessarily for the reverend, but faith drives their politics. Ultimately, we got to take faith back from the partisan divisions in our politics. Mm -hmm. History shows that's a dangerous line. And so I think there's an opportunity here and we'll see how the results come down. I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll say a lot. Separation of church and state. Which we, that's important that's too. very important. John. All right, guys, good to see you. Thank you. You'll have a column on this. Yep. Yeah. Can't wait yeah. to read it on CNN.com over the weekend. Yeah. Okay, embattled quarterback uh, Deshaun Watson is returning to the field after serving an 11-game suspension. This is over multiple accusations of sexual misconduct by more than 20 women. Let's go to David Culver with an incredible live shot. Whoa, David, you're there. David, shouldn't you be wearing some kind of protective gear? I know. We are here, <laughs> Poppy. <laughs> no, we're far enough away, a few miles, but we want to bring you here with us. Ahead this morning, we're going to bring you to what is the world's largest active volcano. There's the lava flow behind me. It is humbling. It is also concerning. We're going to share why just ahead. It's incredible. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have been talking about this volcano all week, and this morning lava is flowing from the world's largest active volcano. It is inching closer to a major highway on Hawaii's Big Island, now just three miles away from literally hitting that highway. Authorities say it could reach the interstate in a week. Our David Culver is live in Waimea, Hawaii, with more. David, what is it actually like to be there, right? You were driving through the middle of the night, and boom. We were, and you know, we were in mid-conversation, and there's few things that can silence a group of journalists as they're full of caffeine and trying to get to their destination, except when you're in the pitch black of night, you turn that curve on a highway, and you see the glow. It's this glow behind me. I, you need to appreciate it better. We're going to turn off the lights here, if you don't mind, Greg and Anamaya. I'm going to step out of the way, because this is a much better view than looking at it as a backdrop, but seeing it as we can push in. Here it is, 2, 3 in the morning, and you can see the really majesty of this. You're looking at Mauna Lea's uh, Fissure 3, okay? So this is not even the summit, guys. That is miles away. Still, this is stunning, and it's the most active and stable lava flow at this hour. Now, locals, they've been passing by, middle of the night, all right? Families pulling over, taking photos, yes, but some of them, and this was interesting, just standing in silence, letting the majesty of this seep in. Now, officials, they're still pretty vigilant here. And in a few hours ago, they updated the lava flow, noting that it slowed down significantly, but it's still headed towards that main highway that you mentioned, Poppy, that saddle road. And cutting that off, that would create a logistical nightmare for residents. So they're hoping it doesn't get to that, but it could, and they're watching it. There's also air quality concerns because what's billowing out of the top, they point out is not smoke, but that's acid gas. So that can really cause serious respiratory problems for residents. So officials are, of course, monitoring the levels. But here's the thing. You've got, got this balance as I step back in. Sorry to block your view. We'll adjust it here. But you've got this balance between the concern, the urgency of this, very real, but also the appreciation and respect. And that comes from the officials. A few hours ago, as they were talking at the latest press conference, they said, you have to understand, Mauna Lea is the reason half, if not more, of this big island exists. The land that people live on is because of eruptions like this. So there is that deep appreciation. Still, though, they're hoping people 
can keep a safe distance and yeah. respect it as they're appreciated. And we've seen that as we're on the side of this road, people have been pulling over. They've come over to us to say, can you turn off your lights? We want to take it in. Wow. And, and folks who are not even locals, even flying in with us, uh, looking to do the same thing, Poppy. Wow. And, and yet uh, they're not quite sure where this is going to go. That's part of the mystery of it all. And so they're keeping close watch. And we are too. Majesty is the perfect word, David. And tonight, instead of reading my son his favorite volcano book, I'm just going to cue this up and show him my buddy who's standing in front of it. Thank you for that incredible live Pretty shot. Pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's talk about the economy. The November jobs report is coming out in just a few minutes. We'll break down the numbers for you ahead. And Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott defending the team's owner, Jerry Jones, after a photo resurfaced of Jones in 1957 during a desegregation protest. In the same sense, it's 65 years ago. Um, and how times have changed. I mean, look the man's resume since then, right? And as I said, I give grace. All right, welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up this hour, LeBron James wants to know why the media is not making a bigger deal out of that 1957 photo that surfaced last week of the Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones, at that desegregation protest in Arkansas. The Cowboys quarterback, Das Prescott, is also weighing in. Plus this morning, gas prices are going down. Good news, they are now lower than they were when Putin actually attacked Ukraine and started that war that has now been going on for months. Also this morning, the White House investors, Don, Poppy, and Caitlin, we are awaiting the key November jobs report. We will have it for you in just a few moments. But first, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott, who is biracial, is now addressing comments made by LeBron James, who suggested there was a double standard in the, in the media coverage of this photograph right here that you're looking at on your screen that was published by the Washington Post, which shows Cowboys owner Jerry Jones at 14 years old looking over as a crowd of white students attempt to block black students from entering a school in 1957. Whether LeBron's talking about the picture, I mean, I think that's, that's on Jerry to, to address, right? I mean, in the same sense, it's 65 years ago. Um, and how times have changed. I mean, look the man's resume since then, right? And as I said, I give grace. And um, I think that's a conversation and a question, not only for him, but uh, for you guys and, and how y'all feel, how accountable y'all have been in, in covering and discussing um, the disparities and differences in race. We want to get now to Bamani Jones. He's a host of the Right Stuff podcast and one of my favorite shows on HBO is The Game Theory with Bamani Jones, which will kick off its second season on HBO and HBO Max uh, come January. Good to have you here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I think we, if, in order to talk about this, we need to hear what LeBron had to say, and then we'll hear from Bamani. Let's listen. As a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform when we do something wrong or or something that people don't agree with it's on every single tabloid every single news coverage it's on the bottom ticker it's asked about every single day but it seems like to me that the whole jerry jones situation photo and i know it was years and years ago and we all make mistakes i get it but it seemed like it's just been buried under like Oh, it happened. Okay, we just we just move on. So, Bomani, go. You have Zach Prescott saying he's basically saying it was a different time, and you have you know LeBron saying, "Hey, why? Am, it's a double standard." What do you think? Well, 
I mean, it was tricky with LeBron because his first thing was, well, why didn't you ask me about this, but you asked me about Kyrie? Because you know Kyrie. Like, you actually know the human being. That would be why you would be asked about one and not asked about another. And I do think that there's a larger point that comes up here is that when somebody like Jerry Jones gets in one of these things, nobody really wants to be the person to say that the old man is a racist. Like, it makes people feel a little uncomfortable. They don't like that. They would prefer to move on. But players in particular, and often black ones, have to answer for these things and have to answer for each other in these circumstances where owners never have to answer for anything. The interesting thing about Jerry Jones is he's the only one that actually does answer questions and actually does take them. But, no, he's not going to get pressed on this the way athletes generally are and black athletes in particular wind up getting pressed when these sorts of things come up. I do, however, subscribe to the camp that's on this one with I don't know what you want me to do with something that was 65 years old and the dude was a teenager. Like, I personally am not going down that road. I'd much rather focus on the long Washington Post story, thousands and thousands of words that use that picture as a metaphor to reflect Jerry's poor record in hiring, which I think is far more important than getting into the, hey, man, what were you doing back in 1957? That doesn't matter that much to me. What happens now, or more importantly, what doesn't happen now, that's the one that I lean on. That was a fascinating piece. We had the uh, journalist uh, behind it on, on the program last week, and I thought what struck me the most to your point was, you know, sports reporters saying to her, Jerry Jones has such power across the NFL. If he were to lead on hiring a black head coach, that would change the league. And the fact that he said to that reporter, I get that, I understand that, right? The significance of the power that he holds and the change he hasn't made yet. But he needs to do something rather than just saying, I get that. Right, right, the change he hasn't made yet. Well, I think it's less about the actual hiring itself than what he said in the story was, I hire people I know. And the way that he talks about the Rooney Rule, which requires that you interview a black or brown person for every coaching job, and there are a few others that come down there, is he's like, that's not how hiring works. And the point is... Right. It's not how hiring works. That's why we need to do something different, because the way that you do hiring doesn't do right by these people. So if Jerry were to say, which I think is most important, hey, we've got a broken way that we do things. And maybe if we tweak it a little bit, we can do something different. And we have to move out of this idea that we stick with the people that we know. That would be more impactful to me than anything else, because the truth is he's had the team for 30 years. I think he's made five coaching hires. One time he hired his college teammate. One time he hired his college coach. Right. One time he hired a dude that played for him many years and let that dude keep the job for almost 10 years when everybody thought that he was mediocre. He sticks with what's familiar and that group of people is going to have to do something different to change it. And I think that part, if he would just say, hey, we need to do things a little bit differently, that's the part I think that would go to farthest. Can I ask you about Deshaun Watson? Because he is returning. It's his first game he's going to play since January 2021 because he has been suspended. Uh, 24 lawsuits were filed against him. All but one of them were settled. I know some of the accusers are actually going to go to the game. I saw from their attorney What do you think his return to the field signifies? Well, it signifies that the NFL is like, okay, let's keep it going. You know, they just want to keep business going as usual. Now, the one thing the NFL thought that they were going to get out of him was some public display of contrition. And he ain't doing that. Mm -hmm. He he didn't do it from the beginning after he put out the statement saying, hey, I made mistakes. He then came out and said he was going to stand on his innocence. When there were questions asked of him this week about it, he just wants to keep it moving and go talk about something else. I don't think that's really going to work for him because until you answer for it, people are going to keep asking questions. You can ask Kyrie Irving about that. It didn't stop until he demonstrated the contrition that people look for. The difference between Roger Goodell's decision here and Adam Silver's 
you know, and the yeah. Nets. Well, the diff- th- there's some structural differences in play there, right? Like for the NBA, this was a team issue, right? Like this is something that the team is supposed to deal with, and so they went from there. With Goodell, they tried and they tried because they just stick their thumb in the way to try to figure out what public opinion says, and public opinion says people think he nasty. Therefore, they were going to try to do something with him. But the diabolical brilliance of the NFL, when you stop and think about this, he's coming back now, and I believe this is week 13, everybody's deep into the football part of it. If you give a sports media an option, they're always going to talk about the football instead of talking about the other stuff because everybody showed up for the football. Only some people showed up for the other stuff. So here we are. This is actually maybe the least interesting game on the NFL slate. Like, if you wanted people to pay attention to football, this isn't the one. They're playing against a terrible team. The Browns themselves aren't actually good. And so what's going to happen is he's going to come back in this tail end of the season and people aren't really going to pay too much attention to him. They're already dealing with the comeback to Houston game. It's going to happen first, whatever it is. They're just getting all of that out of the way right now and hoping that by the time he comes back around next season, they will have moved on and they can get back to talking about football. But nothing I've seen from Watson has demonstrated to me that if he had a problem before, that anything's been done about it. Like he was asked the question, like, hey, you know, what have you done? You know, what have you learned in this process? Uh, That's a bit of a legal and a medical thing. They just ask what you learned, man. All people want to hear from him at this point is, yeah, I need to change the way that I was doing things. He doesn't even really have to get specific about it. He won't even do that. And that would worry me greatly if I were the league and if I were the team. And that's why the uh, accusers' attorneys, a lot of them want to move on, which I understand, but that's why they said they're going, because they don't want people to forget. Oh, and the attorney, while they might want to move on, oh, he wants to be there. This is how you get more clients. This is how you get more calls. And this is in his city. Like, this is his comeback game to Houston. Oh, they're going to be out there. The question is, people in my line of work, how much attention are we going to pay to it? Once he gets there, like how much oxygen are we going to give it? Because there still is an element of this that is patently ridiculous. Well, but Monty Jones, you can listen to his podcast, The Right Stuff, and you can watch him on HBO and HBO Max, Game Theory with Bomani Jones. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Good you. to see you. Thanks. Appreciate you coming in. Uh, just moments ago, the Labor Department releasing the November jobs report. So let's discuss now CNN's chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christine Roman. A strong Jones. month. Another strong month. 263,000 net new jobs added into the economy. The jobless rate right there at 3.7 percent. It's been in this band close to a 50-year low of 3.5 to 3.7 for months now. And last month, you guys, was revised higher Last month was stronger than they first, uh, they first forecast, 284,000 uh, last month. So you have a job market that is still going strong here. It appears to be impervious to the Fed's six months of interest rate hikes here. Wages also rising about 5.1%. Look, everyone had been cheering for a little bit of a healthy cool down. <laughs> now, this is a little bit less than last month. Last month was revised higher. It's less than the monthly job creation of last year. So you are seeing a deceleration, but from a very, very strong level. The White House was looking for a Goldilocks report, right? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. This is still pretty warm. I yeah. mean, this is still a very, pretty warm uh, job market. It's so funny because you see it and you're like, Good jobs report. It's this great. is great. And Jay Powell's like, no. It's yeah. almost too good. In fact, and I think we can show futures. Futures actually plunged just as soon as the report crossed. Yeah. I mean, the Dow futures last I checked were off about 370 points. Actually, and now they're closer to Dow's off about 1%. NASDAQ's off about 2%. And the S&P off about 1.4%. Here's the reason why. It's 
not the cooling that Powell would like to see, right? And so the concern is, do these hot wages, as Christine pointed out, 5.1% on an annual basis, does that start to trickle into prices that we pay? Because if suddenly your boss has to pay you more to work because the labor market is so tight, well, then they start to pass some of that off into higher costs, and that's the problem. Romans, is there any chance that some of this hiring is seasonal because it's the holidays? Yeah, maybe. I mean, they have seasonal adjustments for all of these data series, but, um, you know, guys, COVID just blew a hole into all of the seasons. I mean, we're looking trying, at me. I know. We're trying, because you always say, look, we, we're coming out of a really unique and painful period in the American economy. We're trying to get back to normal. So reading these, these, measuring the economy has become so much more difficult. I think what we've learned this week, taking it all together, the economy is not just one economic report. This one is like the Super Bowl of economic reports, but this. This, what we learned this week is the economy is doing okay, showing res- remarkable strength, remarkable. and yeah. inflation is cooling. All right, then. Should the Fed just slow down? Should the Fed just cool their jets a little bit? I think they're going to. I think they are going to next week. I think they're going to only raise by 50 basis points, and the Fed chief has telegraphed that, and he has said we're going to watch very carefully to see how the numbers are responding. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the it's only other big such report. such a unique moment. I know. The only other big report they get before they meet is CPI, yeah. which, but I mean, tell, people, tell like, people what that is. Consumer. Uh, consumer price index report. It's the inflation report. It's yeah. when we talk about prices rising, that's usually the report that we're talking about. But to Christine's point, I mean, Powell has been very clear about telegraphing what's going to happen, and we still think interest rates will likely cool a little bit. Their rate heights will likely cool. Say, I've been calling this the yes, but economy. Yes, people feel terrible about the economy, but they're spending a lot of money. Yes, you know, inflation is a big problem, but gas prices are coming down and the job market is still strong. Yes, we're raising interest rates like crazy. (laughs) Really, the only place you're seeing weakness in the economy is in the housing market, and it needed to cool down. Last year was a crazy year in housing. So it's the the yes, but economy, and I don't think there's really one takeaway. When do we go, oh my gosh, gas prices are down and and the jobs jobs market is great, but ah, that's When inflation is back down to where we're not talking yeah. about it again. But that's yeah. why the, the jobs report used to be the end-all, be-all, yeah. and now it's the inflation report that is really what everyone pays attention to. You know, look, we're doing, I'm doing PCE price index reports on <laughs> CNN. I mean, that never would have happened four years <laughs> that ago. That never used to happen. But now, Wall Street, Main Street, the Fed, um, everyone, you know, White House, they all want to see these numbers because it's so critical for yeah. how people feel about their think, finances and where we're going. helps mean that uh, Brian Moynihan, Bank of America CEO, who was on earlier this week, is right. Yes. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. That the recession will be mild and short. I think there's still, and Fed Chief Powell said it this week, there is still a path to stick a soft landing. And they're going to do everything they can to try to stick a soft landing. And, and uh, several people have said to me, look, if this, if this is what a, a pre-recession feels like, this is the best but pre-recession But even if there I've is a recession, seen. even if there is a, because, I mean. Right. I mean, if we're talking about a mild recession, we're talking about what, like, Unemployment at 5%. To be clear, that still means millions Millions of people people. are going to lose their jobs. So, you know, obviously we're sensitive to that, but it's a question of how long does it last? How severe will it be? And those are the questions we're talking about. We should say part of the reason why we expect it to be mild is because we're sitting on so much money compared to before the pandemic. And a mild recession is better than terrible entrenched inflation. That's what we're trying to stop here. We'll be watching closely to see what those inflation numbers look like. By the way, Rahel slipped right in. Here, but here I <laughs> am. It's the magic. Yeah. <laughs> what was the genie thing you were doing the other day? Was that you? The eye drew. Yeah, you, you were doing that. Was me. You said you slipped in. He said, "How'd you get in here?" I said, "I just like wiggle my nose and I disappear." Don, your wish <laughs> is my command. <laughs> oh, good. Careful. Well, Christine, thank you both so much for breaking down those numbers with us.
Uh, speaking of gas prices, we were just talking about they are dropping. They're lower actually right now, today, than they were before Russia invaded Ukraine. We'll give you the details uh, on what those gas prices look like ahead. And, and Thanks, guys. I know. Is that? Yeah. We're all wearing the same jacket. I love it. you are filling up your tank this morning, gas prices are actually now lower than they were before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. That is our morning number today. So let's go to CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enton. Harry, good news? Uh, I would say it's pretty freaking good news. If you look, take a look at gas prices, down 31% since the June peak. The current price of 345 is nearly equal to the 338 a year ago. So gas prices are basically where they were a year ago. Much better for folks who are trying to commute to work or take their family somewhere nice. Okay, but on that front, uh, switching topics completely, we have here some of our new favorite chicken spots are adding items to their menus. What does this have to do with the price of chicken, though, in the country? It's a, it's a real issue. Yeah, it is a real issue. You know, talking about things that hit the American pocketbook, this is why we're so interested in chicken prices. Look at this. The, pe- the price of a boneless, skinless chicken breast down 70% since last, late spring. It's currently the lowest level since early 2021. So, again, when you're talking about gas prices, you're talking about chicken breasts. Those things may not seem related, but the fact is they're the types of things that really sort of hit the Americans in their pocketbooks. When those prices were high, it really hurt them. And now those are going lower. Folks have more money to spend on perhaps other things that they enjoy. Stocking stuffers. Yeah, stocking stuffers. (laughs) You're putting chicken in your stockings? No, on other things. Yeah, big screen televisions. Thank you very (laughs) much. Listen, this is just in. um, Conspiracy theorist Alex Jones filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy Mm -hmm. as he is being ordered to pay millions to Sandy Hook families over his lies about shooting. More on that ahead. We're just one week away from announcing the 2022 CNN Hero of the Year, who will be chosen by you, our viewers. Harry Glasgow is one of its one of the finalists here. He was shot 11 times when he was a drug dealer in his South Philly neighborhood. But since returning home from prison just a decade ago, he has been a force for good. When you run a block, you're the one who the community people know. It's a dangerous life, but it's a normal life. Going to jail really woke me up. If our community was going to follow me for some of the negative stuff, I just said, let me see if they're going to follow me for something positive. Hey, you can grab what you want. Make yourself at home. In 2019, we opened up our community engagement center, which used to be at the community drug house, but now it's a safe place for our children. How many people here got kids? We provide clothing, food, vegetables. We have hot meals on Tuesdays and Thursdays. One chicken? Giving people what they need not only helps them, it it consistently stays safer here. The shootings are down and the hope is up. That's what she's here for. My relationship with the Philadelphia Police Department is cool. Seeing the officers in a different light, it builds trust and it builds confidence. They need to see that all cops aren't bad. It's really about your heart and what you want to do. We're trying to create a safe haven and an environment for the whole neighborhood. So go to CNNHeroes.com right now. Make sure, sure you vote. Blah, 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 if I can get the words out. You almost made it. I know. I almost made it through. It's really going to be so good. I know. I'm voting. Yeah. Did you have a good week? We had a great week. Yeah? It's, yeah. Been, it's been fun. Yep. I know. They're saying we got to go. We got to go, right. everybody. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. See you Monday. 
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.